0: Chapter five. We're going to start in verse twelve. I'm going to go ahead and read the section that we're going to cover, and then we're going to get into it and uh, divide it up. So, Luke chapter five. We're going to start in verse twelve. Oops, this is my first time using my uh, iPad to preach, and so I don't know what's going to happen. Be bear with me. Um, so it, it starts and it says this: When Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now we need to stop right there, and we need to talk about leprosy. Okay. Because we might have a little bit of familiarity with this, but this was a big deal for them. Right. See, leprosy um, wasn't just the skin disease that we think of where like stuff, you get big sores and it's just bad news. There was a whole category of skin diseases. They were classified as a leprosy. Right. And all of these were things that were really easily transmitted to other people and just made life really bad. Everything from like severe rashes or swelling of the skin to actual what we know as leprosy, where, you know, like stuff would end up falling off because it just rotted away. It was a bad news. And so if you had leprosy in this time, it was in every aspect of life a death sentence. In your physical life, it meant that it was going to be difficult and then more than likely you would die before you were supposed to. Emotionally, you were an outcast. They quarantined you off over in a section of town for people like you. And they said, you know what? You you can't be a part of us because you'll spread this disease to everyone else. And they were marked as an outcast. In fact, they made them wear clothing that was tattered and torn and and just disgusting. So if you saw somebody, you oh, that's probably a leper. I need to be away from them. Not only that, these people, when they would walk down the street, if, if they were to get near to somebody who didn't have leprosy, they would have to call out unclean, 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 so that people who were walking by them knew that they were had some sort of condition that made them unclean. So emotionally, they were just cast aside. They were completely separated from any sort of connection. Relationally, they were cut off from their family. They were cut off from any perspective of connection with people outside of their little quarantined area. Spiritually, they weren't allowed into into the worshiping community, the temple. So they were literally cut off from every aspect of life that they saw as important. So that's a big deal. So this man full of leprosy comes and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus, he he charged him to tell no one, but go away and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered around to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray on one of those days, as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So we got to stop right there and say, who are these guys? The Pharisees. Who are they? What are they doing? Why did he make a point to mention them? So Pharisees were this sort of like social political group that has established themselves at this time. Um, they said, look, we are really all about this law that our people followed. The law was 613 commands that had been passed down by God that touched on every area of life. Touched on food, clothing, relationships, worship, everything you could think of this touched on. And, but these guys were like, you know what? We like those, but we think we need more. More than 613 rules. So I have two rules for youth, for our students. I have two rules. Don't do anything stupid and don't be a jerk. Those are my two rules. And a lot of times that can be too much. Like, like a lot of times it's like, ah, dang, I better, better, need to relax on these two rules. There's 613. But these guys were like, you know what? We need more. We need a few more. And so they appointed themselves and they said, we're not only going to do these things, we're going to do some more things and we're going to do them in a particular way. And these guys had some serious beef with Jesus. They did not like what he was doing. They did not like what he was saying. They did not like what he stood for. They didn't like him. So any chance they could, they'd gather around him in, a ch- in an opportunity to catch him in something where they could they could put him on, on trial and maybe take him to jail. Or even worse, they could take him to Roman governors and maybe possibly get him out of, uh, of their area so that they didn't have to deal with him who, as he was undermining what they said to do. So these Pharisees were there. And they come from every village in Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men uh, were bringing a man on a bed who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But they found no way to bring him in because of the crowd. And they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. So what this meant is it was so crowded in this house where Jesus was teaching and doing miracles. So many people had packed in the house and around the house that they literally couldn't get their buddy through. Like they couldn't squeeze their way into Jesus' presence. So they said, you know what? We're going to do something about it. So they started, I don't know whether they found a ladder or some stairs, but they got up, they climbed around, they went up on top of the roof and started just tearing at thatch. And mud and tiles until finally it opened up and they're like, oh, hey, there's Jesus. And so they lowered their buddy in through the roof. Now, just think about the difficulty of this. Like, think about how hard it would be to carry your paralyzed friend from your house a few miles down the street to where Jesus was. Then not only that, to carry him up on a roof, to tear through a dirty, muddy, bricked up roof. And then lower your paralyzed buddy. Down. I mean, that's that's commitment, right? So this is, was not some easy thing where they were like, "Ah, oh, you know, it's just going through the roof." There's a skylight. That wasn't the deal. Like they were doing serious work. Like we—I illustrated this one time on Sunday night with youth right here. And who got carried? Do you remember? It was Brandt. I think Brant got carried. Anyway, so we had four guys carry up one of their friends all the way around the room. And now these guys, you know, they're athletic high school guys. So they get done. And, you know, you know, my if, if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, no problem. But these guys, the guys got done. They're like we got and I'm like, that was one lap around the room. Think about like a mile, a mile, two miles and then lowering your. I mean, that's some serious work to get this guy in the presence of Jesus. So after they did all this work, you know, they lowered him, they lowered him down. And and when he saw their face, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, who we talked about earlier, began questioning, saying, who is this who speaks such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. He said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, rise up and walk. But so so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they all glorified God and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen an extraordinary thing today. I mean, this is an incredible story. These are two incredible stories. And, and they actually sort of support this this thing that drives me like the whole reason I, I enjoy this story is because it testifies to something I already believe. And that's that Jesus changes lives. Whatever way you said that what we get from these two stories is that Jesus changes lives. I, before before I heard this, I believed that Jesus changed lives because he changed my life. Like he, he changed my life. Because I, I wasn't always the guy up here talking on a microphone about Jesus on Sunday mornings. I, I was. So to give you to give you some context. Like, you know, you go in your small group and someone has, you know, some high school age children and they're like, look, we got to pray for my kids. They're going crazy. They're doing all this ridiculous stuff. I don't know what's going to happen. I was the kid you were praying for. That would not be a dead state. That was me. I mean, I can remember I went home one time after I became a Christian and talked to my mom and my mom brought out this book called Power of a Praying Parent. And she goes, Timothy, there are pages I can't read on this book because I smudged the ink off. Because there are times when I didn't know if I'd ever see you again. But from that, Jesus changed my life. Like I met him. I encountered him, he flipped everything upside down and actually changed, not like in my mind, or oh, I think you but like changed my life. He changed my family's life, he changed my friends' life, he changed my siblings' life, he changes lives. That's what we see here. And one of the ways he does this is through this thing called redemption. Right? Through, through this idea called redemption. Redemption. And maybe you've heard this word before. I, I had an experience with this word when I was like nine or ten. Um, my first experience with this was my dad um, used to take me to this uh, holy place called Tropical Island Arcade. Similar to like a Stars and Strikes or a Mount Asia, but we'd go in and there were these machines that had games and all this other stuff. And if you played it right and you scored the right amount of points... They spit out these wonderful things called tickets. And if you got enough tickets, you could get stuff, right? And one day, as we were going through Tropical Island, I looked, and I beheld the sweetest of all things, a Sony Walkman boombox with a tape cassette recorder where you could, like, record things off the radio. Sweet. It was sweet. Talking about nine D-cell batteries powered that. It was awesome. And I was like, I, looked, I was like, dad, I want it. And so we played pinball. We played every game that would get tickets. I played, I mean, my dad must have dropped like nine grand on a, on like a $60 boom box. Right. And, but so anyway, we go, right. I've got hefty garbage bags full of tickets and we go up like a boss. And I went, boom, I put them all in and give me the boom box. And the guy was like, you? So he put it down. I was like, so I took the tickets and I redeemed them for the boombox. box. I was like, you know, the, however many thousand tickets were the redemption value of the boombox. So I put them up there. God, I felt like a, I was like, I'm the man. And immediately I went home and put like Weird Al Yankovic on there or something like that. <laughs> let you know where I was <laughs> hard anyway. Um, and so I redeemed them. So we, we kind of have an idea for this, but it. If you were in this period, you would be really familiar with the word redemption, right? Because it it happened every day. That's what happened when you wanted to go out and buy something. The the act of buying something, the act of purchasing something, the act of exchanging something of value for something you wanted was called redemption. So you take money, you would take something to trade or barter with, you'd go out and you'd be like, Troy, that's a good looking goat, man. What do you need for that? I got, I got another, I got, I got some sheep. I got a, you know, I got a camel over here and you give me four goats for the, you know, you would haggle a little bit, or maybe you just had money and you would say, I want this thing. I have something of value. Are you willing for me to be able to redeem this for your stuff? And so it was this common marketplace term, right? But it doesn't usually mean that, it doesn't always mean that it, what we see is it takes on a different meaning through the story of scripture, right? In fact, uh, according to Mark Driscoll and Gary Beshears, it redemption becomes synonymous with being liberated, freed, or rescued from bondage and slavery to a person or thing. Uh, another author, uh, Terence Freedom, says redemption is for the purpose of creation. A new life within the larger creation, a return to the world as God intended it to be. So we see that, that when we read the word redemption in the Bible... This isn't mainly a theological word. This is something that somebody said, I need a word to help you understand what God is doing. Oh, redemption. He's taking something and exchanging something of value to get what he wants. And what we see here is that he says the world is broken. Things aren't as they should be. But I'm going to work to take it from where it is. I'm going to exchange something so that it becomes what I want it to be. It it, it becomes the act instead of just paying a price, it becomes more like a ransom. It becomes more like I need to free this thing, this these people creation from captivity to restore it to where it was. So we see that that redemption occurs through the all out, through, through all of scripture. We see it in Genesis when right after Adam and Eve fell. God God exchanges their nakedness and clothes, clothes them with animal skins. Right. So then then after that, it it keeps going. And we see that that God redeems the world from man's corruption by, by sending a flood and rescuing some people. We see that he continues to redeem his people. He redeems them out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea and brings them into the promised land as he intended He continues redeeming them. He redeems them in their sin. He redeems them when they are exiled to Babylon. Eventually, we see the culmination of this redemption in the person and work of Jesus who comes not only to redeem people physically from brokenness and bondage, but to redeem us inwardly from sin and death. So redemption is throughout all of the pages of Scripture. We see this thing that changes lives. Because that's the bottom. See, it's easy to get in these quotes. It's easy to get in this thing of how does it play out? But the bottom line is that Jesus changes lives through redemption. He takes what we have. He takes our brokenness, our sin, our shame, our addiction, the death inside of us and takes those ashes and makes them beautiful. He takes pain and turns it into triumph. He takes loneliness and turns it into fellowship. He takes these things that eat away at us and makes us whole. That's what this is about. That's what we see in the story. We see we, we see that Jesus is working specifically in the story to bring redemption. Because we look at this and immediately I just go, so what? Like, cool, it's a story in a book. Like, so, I mean, that's neat that that happened. What, what on earth does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with me? Because it's not just for them. It shows what Jesus, not only what he did, but what he's like and what he will continue to do. So we see, I think this shows us five things. It shows us four things that Jesus redeems. And those four things point us to something else. So we're going to go ahead and go through that right now. So the first thing, I'll go ahead and tell you the four things he redeems. He redeems our pain. He redeems our belief. He redeems our relationships and he redeems our priorities. Right. So pain, belief, relationship and priority. He he takes those things where they are broken in captivity, serving things other than him. And he exchanges them for what they should be. So he exchanges our pain for what, whatever is supposed to be in place of that. He exchanges our belief for whatever is the right thing. He exchanges our relationships for whatever his intention for relationships are. He takes our priorities and exchanges them and makes them as they should be. So that's what we're going to look at now. So the question of pain, right? So we start and immediately the story is m- most readily about two guys who are sick. I mean... I, immediately i'm like oh i get this i I completely understand this i know it. i mean i'm sure some of you maybe maybe this winter you had that feeling of like oh my gosh i physically can't move i have so much congestion inside my face that my head might explode you know or or maybe i don't know i I, occasionally i get migraines y'all anybody ever have migraines and it's like all i want to do is be in a room that is so dark that I don't think I'll ever see light again. And the second anything makes noise, I just want to murder it. Right? Like, that's all I want to do. Like, there's one sound over here, and I'm like, freak out, you know? But, and it's not just that. We, we, I mean, I, we get what it's like. We, get, we can sympathize with these guys. We can empathize with these guys. I mean, whether it's a migraine or you've had somebody that is seriously ill, like, like these guys with, with no real hope of recovery, we, we know what it's like. In a broader sense, we know what pain is like, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, spiritual. We, we get the idea that there is pain. We get that there is suffering. And sometimes we just don't know what to do with it. Right? Like we look and we go, what, what are we supposed to do? And, and, I, and I think that this tells us, it doesn't answer the question we want to ask. Because the question we want to ask is, why? Right? Like, we don't care what happens, how it happened. We want to know why it happened. If if this is going on, why am I suffering? Why is there pain? Why do I feel lonely? Why is, is this person sick? Why did this person leave? Why? And God graciously says, not the most important thing it's not and he does that by. by i think he shows us that there are two responses we can't have right the first and these are both really tempting so the two responses are to abandon god or to abandon pain because we have god right we those are the two responses that we see that i think we kind of fall into the first one so we say because there is suffering I I can't believe that there's a God who would allow this or uh, this hurt too much. And I've heard that God is in charge of stuff. So that that doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to push that off the side. But here's the deal is that doesn't really do anything. Like this story shows us that that is not a legitimate first step. So something happens to us or someone we love. It is tempting to go that way. But the story, it says that really, actually, absolutely does nothing because it's tempting to say, if God is like this, if God is in charge, if God, whatever it is, then this shouldn't happen. Or at least I can't make sense of it. So I would rather just deal with this as it is and and leave the problem of God to somebody else. But actually there are a lot of reasons we should. And I think this is actually interesting. Even people who have given up belief in God say, yeah, when it comes to the problem of pain or suffering, abandoning God is not the way to go. There, there's a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre. He's an atheist philosopher. And so time out. I'm really like a closet nerd. So because I have a microphone and I don't think anyone can stop me in time, I'm going I'm to nerd for a minute. And hopefully it's, it's useful for you. It, it is at least fun for me. Uh, so Jean-Paul Sartre, he says it this way. He said, if God disappears, well, there disappears with him. All possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be good, any good a priori. That just means beforehand. There can no longer be a pre-existing good. It's nowhere written that the good exists. That one must be honest or one must not tell a lie. Since we are now upon a plane where there are only men. Dostoevsky once wrote, if God doesn't exist, then everything would be permitted. And everything is indeed permitted if God doesn't exist. And man is in consequence forlorn. For he can't find anything to depend on, whether either within or outside of himself. And he discovers forthwith that he is without an excuse. So what he says basically is, really, when faced with the problem of pain, you, 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 you can't, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't help you solve the problem. In fact, it makes it worse because now just it's pain for pain. There's no meaning. It doesn't cause you to alleviate. It doesn't cause you to look at someone else who is in pain and be moved internally to solve the problem. You just go, oh, that's just the way it is. I'm going to worry about my thing and you worry about your thing. In fact, if this is true, then pain and suffering is the norm. Pain and suffering, just, it should exist because the universe is a weird, random place. But then why is it so unnatural? Why do we look and go, ah, this is not the way it's supposed to be? And we we can stop with the philosophy right now, because when it comes down to it, pain is personal. It does no good to to, to go through this stuff when someone is in front of you hurting, aching. And Jesus deals not with the idea of it, but with with the pain of it. So how does he redeem pain? How does Jesus redeem pain? I think he does three things. He shows us that he's with us in it. He rouses us through it and he's working to erase it. See, the first thing he does when he meets the leper, he doesn't immediately speak to him and heal him. That would be sort of my deal, right? Oh, yeah, I can do it heal. The first thing he does is this man who has never experienced human contact who anyone who has ever been around him, who has just run away from him. His whole life is about being creating distance between himself and other people. The first thing Jesus done is, it does is reach out his hand and touch him. The first thing he does is extend his hand and say, you are not alone. He says, no, you may feel alone. It may seem like you're alone, but I am with you. I am for you. Even in this personal hell, I am with you. I don't know about you, but that just immediately does something. To see that that when suffering exists, when I go through something hard, that I'm actually not alone. And not in some, like, weird, there are two sets of footprints in the sand kind of way. But really, actually, helping me change what's going on inside of me. Jesus is with me, extending grace in a way that actually makes this better in some way. But he rouses us through it, too. He stirs us to action and attention through this. C.S. Lewis says that... Uh, pain is god's microphone to a deaf world you know 15 years ago the the issue of human trafficking was was a non-issue no one cared no one even knew there was no awareness but now if you can find me a christian under the age of 25 who doesn't have a red x on the back of their car give you like a a, thousand dollars right it's become this issue People have realized this immense suffering and pain, and they say this isn't as it should be. I'm going to do something about this. People work to create vaccines and and create education programs to alleviate suffering because they say there is pain in the world that should not be there. We work with foster care organizations because we say the pain of loneliness for a child should not be there. It is not the way God intended it. And this pain has roused us to do something. So he rouses us through. He also is working to erase it. And this might be the most important thing. Because if you flip to the end of the book in Revelation 21, it says that there will be a day when God wipes away every tear with his own hand. There will come a day when sickness, suffering, death, hell, disease, all this stuff will no longer exist. And because we have that hope, And we know that he's with us and we're provoked action. We can make it through. God actually takes what is meant for harm against us and causes us to hope in him, trust in his presence and work for the blessing of other people. That's how he redeems our pain. But that's not it. He also redeems our belief. See, the story we we see two men in the story who say, my only hope, I believe most deeply that Jesus is not only the solution for my problem, but he holds everything in the palm of his hand. See, we all have beliefs. We all do. We all have something that we trust, that we depend on, that we lean on, that we say, this is where I get my, my, my worldview from, that this is my uh, source of meaning, value, significance, this thing. And we believe in that. We trust it. It's not always Jesus, though. Could be money. You could say if I work hard enough, make enough money, have enough set back, then really nothing can ever touch me. Nothing can ever really affect me. Talk to people who had a lot of money before 2007 and ask them how quickly money can go. You may say, it's my job. I'm really good at my job. I'm recognized by everyone around me as someone who is great until someone younger, smarter, faster, better comes along. Right? The way I look, I'm in great shape. I'm attractive. Age 60 years. 70 years age, it goes away, right? I'm not always going to be this good looking guys. Har- harvest will be. I will not. This this podcast goes online, by the way, <laughs> you hear that? that was slick right there. Anyway, um, it, it, it like we can't trust things. But Jesus says, look, I'm redeeming your, your nature. We have it in our nature to trust and believe in things right we have this thing we are designed to trust we are designed to desire to believe to to put all of our eggs in. A, we're, we're made that way and he says but i'm going to rescue you from trusting in things that continually fail he says i'm gonna i'm gonna point you to the one who never fails and more than that when we when we believe in other things, we have to wrestle the things we want out of their hands. We have to wrestle money out of people's hands through work, through sweat, through doing jobs that might be hard, might be difficult, might leave us with debt. We have to wrestle these things that we want out of false sources of trust. But Jesus, He says, "I am willing." Jesus looks and He says, "I want to give it to you. Believe in me. Trust in me. I'm willing." And so then he, he not only redeems what we trust, him, but he redeems how much we trust. He takes us from being people who were kind of stingy with our belief to people who are full in, wholehearted, deep in our bones, compelled to believe in his goodness. I mean, we're compelled to run to him in the in, in the presence of everyone and say, I need something from you. We're compelled to tear through a roof to get to him. Because Here's the deal, guys. That leper. Jesus came to his town, right? Jesus came in, big crowds, obviously huge crowds. He could have had a great story. Man, you remember that time, Steve, you remember that time Jesus came to town? It was great. Steve, my other leper buddy in my leper colony. You remember that time Jesus came to town? Man, he was doing all kinds of great stuff. You remember all those guys, man, those two guys tore through a roof to get to him. It was crazy. It was pandemonium. You know, like, if the Falcons won more than seven games, it'd be the same way. Like, it would be unbelievable, right? And he could have had this great story, right? He he wouldn't have had to embarrass himself. He wouldn't have had to break any rules. He he would have had this great story, but he would have still been a leper. He would have still been a leper. But instead of all that, he says, I I believe. I believe you can make me well if you will make me well. Make me well. And, And everything changes. Right, like as a parent, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is deep belief in Jesus one of the greatest gifts you can give the, the people in your house is a life that models I, I will do nothing short of get to jesus whatever it takes i will wake up early to pray i will treat people fairly who do not treat me fairly i will love your mom or dad i will love you extend grace to you i'll do i'll do whatever it takes to be with jesus i'll i'll quit a job and choose another job i'll say no to opportunities so i can be here with you i'll move to india anything whatever it takes to be where jesus wants you to be to be with him following him that's the greatest gift you can give my folks students, six and six through 12 the greatest gift you can give your friends who don't know jesus is a life that shows that you trust him I'm telling you, you can know all the stuff, all the reasons for God and all this other stuff. But if you live a life that models unbelievable trust in Jesus, that's what your friends. need. And he redeems us for that, right? So he doesn't only redeem our belief, he, re- he redeems our relationships. This, this, I, I look at this and I see Jesus saying there are two sets of relationships here that I am fundamentally changing. First, he says, how do you deal with people who aren't like you? How do you deal with somebody who maybe isn't that desirable to hang out with? Someone who's not as smart as you, who doesn't have the education you do, who doesn't have the money you do, who doesn't work the kind of job you think is great. So whatever your qualifications are to be a good person doesn't meet those qualifications. What do you do? You push them to the side? Do you act politely but then talk about them behind their back? Are you even available for them? Jesus says the life that we're supposed to live towards people who have been pushed to the outside is always the one of extending our hand. Looking at him and saying, you might not have a place anywhere else, but you have a place with me. That's what he does with the leper, this person who is constantly pushed to the outside of society. This person who is constantly on the edges, the person who is constantly not just ignored, but systematically segregated away from society so i look and i say how do you treat people that society culture your your group of friends says are not the people you want to be associated with emotionally needy people how do you treat them people who have a uh, people who have something in their life that you're like i don't think jesus is a big fan of that i better keep you out to the outside How, how do you act do you, do you go along with them, or, 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 or do you say, "You know what? I, I see Jesus extending His hand. I'm going to extend my hand." Because I'll say this: what this tells us is in our relationships, He, they know. That uh, was a baby joke. So, <laughs> if there's one thing Steve's taught me, it's that when a baby yells, you in some way acknowledge it, right? Like they know what you do? Cool. All right, I tried it. Kind of didn't didn't hit. But anyway, um, it, this isn't just we should do this. It's you have a responsibility to do it. You have a responsibility to have an eye towards those who are marginalized. You have have the responsibility to care for those who no one else cares about. It's not just it would be great if you did it. It would be icing on top. It is fundamentally part of who you are. It's part of who he is. The next thing is he redeems our relationship with other people who are in our spiritual family. So I look at these guys who have a buddy who has never walked a step in his life. And they say, we heard that Jesus can make you better. Will help. Will help you get to his presence because that's where you'll be made well. Our responsibility towards each other is not people passing as ships in the night who toast coffee cups in the foyer on Sunday morning. That's not our responsibility. That's not our relationship. It is a relationship, but it's not the one that Jesus calls us to. Our responsibility towards each other is not even to be best friends. Our responsibility towards each other is to relentlessly pursue the best for those who are around us. To do whatever it takes so that the person who is near, who is in our spiritual family, doesn't miss what Jesus has for them. And, and, and this is, you know, it's not just praying for people. Praying for people is awesome. But they didn't just pray for them. They moved, right? Like sometimes being the presence of Jesus for other people is bringing lasagna to someone who is sick. It's taking four hours out of your afternoon so that you can go to a training so that you can babysit some foster kids so parents can have a night off. That can be being the presence of Jesus to people. It can be being someone who is openly kind and unashamedly compassionate in a world where people are generally sarcastic and usually push people off. That can be the presence of God. In fact, I would say that. If you're in need, one of the concrete places that you can find grace is in relationships with people who love Jesus and love you. If you've experienced this, I don't need to tell you. If you haven't, I'm pleading with you. That is, a sp- that, that is something that has been redeemed for us to participate in. If you're isolated from Christian community and you feel a dead spot in your heart, I bet one plus one equals two there. I'm, I'm telling you, it is something that God has given us. That brings his grace in a way that nothing else can. So he's redeemed our relationships. Finally, he redeemed our priorities. As we look and Jesus is tremendously dumb, stupid, successful, right? Like he's doing his stuff and all of a sudden people come so much that it's like a packed house. So show is sold out to where there's only auxiliary seating outside where Jesus is. So much where guys can't even get their crippled friend through the door. Like, that's how packed it is. That's how successful it is. We would look and say this gigantic crowd means success, right? He wants people to hear the message of the kingdom. He wants people to receive healing. So all these people have come in. So much so that, I mean, it's crowded. It says that people from all these towns were coming to hear Jesus. I'm telling you, if if I experienced that kind of success. My first instinct, I'm just going to be my first instinct would be, all right, whatever I've been doing, I'm going to try to do it at a higher level. Whatever I feel like has gotten me here, I'm going to really learn how to do it the best I can. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to work longer hours. I'm going to get better people around. I'm going to do whatever I'm doing to a higher level. And the first thing Jesus done, all these people around, all these people, Jesus, we want Jesus. Hey, Jesus, the first thing he does is run away from all of them and go pray. Jesus greets the lure of fame with intentional fellowship in the presence of his father. He says success is not the priority. God's will in me through my life is the priority. So that might not mean success in what everybody else says. It means are you effectively walking in the calling that he's called you to? Are you doing the stuff he's asked you to do? That's what it is, because the, the temptation here is to find whatever make a, makes us successful and do it until our brains come out of our net, like to do it until we can't do it anymore. And Jesus says the priority is him. A priority is the father. The priority is his will, his way, his heart, his desires. If, if people gather because of it, cool. But if they don't, you're still going to do the same thing. You're going to withdraw to a desolate place and pray. You're going to withdraw so that you can say, gee, like, look, it is really tempting to make stuff that I can touch, feel, see that that, this is it's tempting to make this the priority, but it's not. You are. So he completely rearranges our priorities. So so he redeems our pain. He redeems the deepest part of our beliefs. He redeems all of our relationship and and, and he redeems our priorities. You know, I, I said that this points us to something. And it does. It, 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 it points us in the same way that like. When you give someone a present, yeah, the present is great, but really it's just a representation that you care about them, right? Like, like the joy in giving a gift is not, oh, look how great the gift is. It's look how much I love you and care about you. Right. And so redemption points us to the redeemer. It shows us his character. It shows us his heart Because at the end of the day, everything else here fades away. Right. Like at the end of the day, pain goes away because our bodies fade away. Eventually, belief won't be that big of a deal. Like, like all of these things, all this redemption will eventually culminate in a point and all we'll have left is him. And this actually brings us deep joy because we recognize because of what we see here, because of what we see in all of the Bible, that he is unbelievably, unimaginably loving. He loves us and he likes us and he wants the best for us. We see someone here that the creator of the world came and was unmade so that we could be remade. He came, him who never sinned, had no sin, was made sin so that we could live righteously. Right, like He comes in and he deals with our spiritual inner leprosy, this sick disease that isolates us from everyone and makes us untouchable. And he says, I'm reaching out to you to completely heal you. He heals our inner disease. He, suffered, he became an outcast so that we could be brought in. He suffered loneliness so that we would never have to. He he believed perfectly on our behalf. He trusted God 100 percent of the time so that when our trust is weak and pitiful and pathetic, we can lean on him. He was in perfect relationship with God and other people so that when we mess it up, we can say, Jesus, save me. And he gives us that righteousness. He was the one who never got his priorities out of line. He said, I'm stupid, successful. I'm going to run away and pray so that when we get our priorities all jacked up, he says, no, don't look at that. Look at what I did. They are covered by me. He became all our nasty stuff. He became everything that needed redemption so that we could be redeemed. It shows us that he wants this more than we do. It shows us that he is for our heart. He is for our wholeness. He is for restoring us to all the things that God wanted because he became the price for them. He paid the ransom by himself. He became the cost of our redemption so that we could enter this freely. And that is good news. That is such good. Good news that fills me with joy because it tells me that any time that I experience pain or jack up relationships or get messed up priorities or don't believe the right things, that it's not up to me to scratch and claw and fight my way into right standing, that he's done it for me so I can trust it completely, that it's not my strength, it's his. And it is it is more than enough. It shows me that I was more hopeless than I ever dared imagine, but was more love than I could ever dream It shows me that there is no need of redemption deeper than his ability to redeem. There is no pit so deep that his love is not deeper. And that is good news. That is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for your neighbor. It's good news for your prodigal child. It's good news for your angry uncle. It's good news for your estranged brother. It's good news for the tennis team that you're on. It's good news for everybody everywhere at any time. And we want to participate in it this morning. So I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going to respond. Because what we see is that redemption is about Jesus' action and our participation. We come in and say, Jesus, you've done an amazing thing. We want to experience it. So here's what I'm going to say in in, in closing. There's a guy named Peter Rollins and he has this really interesting remark about uh, how we kind of deal with this stuff. He has this analogy and he says uh, in the Depression era, uh, like musical movies, you know, were were really popular forms of entertainment. People would come in, they'd pay money they really didn't have and escape lives that were awful. They'd be entertained for an hour, hour and a half, two hours maybe. And they'd come out and they'd be like, Okay, cool, I feel better. But nothing changed. Like, Like everything was the same. We felt a little bit better, right? And he says, my concern is that this is what church has become. Church has become a place that we go that makes us feel better in the moment, that addresses whatever our problems are, that addresses whatever our needs are, but in no way helps us process them or do anything about them. It's, be, it's become feel good. It's become whatever. And we have an opportunity right now. To, to break that cycle. We have an opportunity right now to say, you know what? I'm going to participate. I have an op- we have an opportunity right now to say, you know what? It might not be any of those four things, but there is something in me that needs redemption. Right? Like you might be an adult who is like, I have seen so much stuff has to, that my heart is so hardened and cynical. I don't believe Jesus will do anything. You need redemption. You might be a teenager who has been at church every Sunday for your lifespan and you're so used to Jesus that, that you don't care anymore. You need redemption. You might be someone who is like, I don't even know who Jesus is. The great news is he's extending an invitation of redemption to you right now. So let, let's not do the thing where we say, OK, cool, I'm, I'm going to go leave now. Let's what do we need to do to participate in redemption? I don't know what that is, but I'm asking you. Don't let it slip by right when I was a kid and I was not a I, I remember being in high school and we would leave church and I'd hear about Jesus who I didn't know. and I'd hear about stuff that I was really convicted about doing and I'd hear stuff to do that I really didn't want to do. And the, my greatest fear is that my mom would talk to me about it on the way home. I'm dead serious. My greatest fear is that my mom would say, what did you think about that? How did that make you feel? What do you think you should do? Because I knew I, that it would just come tumbling down. Don't let that happen. Don't. I don't know what you need to do. I don't know how you need to respond, but respond. Whether it's here, whether it's on the way home, whether it's in your room when you get home, whether it's in the bathroom at Starbucks, whatever you need to do, do it. Now, we have some ways for you to respond. Ministry teams, you can go ahead and come up. Um, We have communion right here.